we are now entering the uh, more kind of um, uh, in, not, it's not more interesting, but we're entering the phase of our conference where we're going to go into phase two. We've, we've been in phase one for the last three panels. Now we're in phase two because we're repeating the subject matters that we've been talking about, but with unique participants for each roundtable. And so the participants you'll be seeing in this panel, the next one, and then tomorrow morning, we're all going to be talking about the same stuff, but from new points of view, evolving the same dialogue together, um, but, but with new things added in. So I wanted to uh, just plant this for you guys, because we had a very nice kind of segue from last panel to this one. Um, Eric from the last panel mentioned that one way we could think about uh, mending the relationship between uh, science and society and art and society is to, th is to think instead about how science and art could work together, become stronger partners, and then that would have a trickle-down effect into society. And I think that's a really nice idea. But this speaks directly to science-art collaboration and in the ways that we can improve collaboration, get collaboration to be a more regular thing, um, identify the problems that we're having with collaboration. Maybe it's about jargon like we were just talking about. Um, so, so I want to kind of plant that as a way for you guys to start out this um, because I think it really ties together nicely. Zach is going to come up and introduce all the panelists, so please raise your hand when he says your name. Daniel Cohn. Daniel is co-founder of the Viz Group and was a founding, the founding artist in residence at the Broad Institute for Genomic Research. He currently serves as an artist in residence at the Center for Epigenomic Research at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and manages a variety of other projects. Edgar Chewery. Oh, <laughs> Edgar is a professor and director of Princeton's program in engineering physics and director of Princeton's, Princeton's electric propulsion and plasma dynamics laboratory. Tiga Brain. Tiga is an artist and environmental engineer whose work intersects ecology, engineering, and the politics of emerging technologies. She is a fellow at Data and Society and is an assistant professor of digital media at NYU. Karen Ingram. Karen is a crea creative director, designer, artist, and author, as well as a synthetic biology LEAP fellow. She is also a co-organizer of the Empiricist League, a science cabaret based in Brooklyn. Alexi Gambis. Alexi is a filmmaker and biologist whose interdisciplinary work aims at transforming the way science is communicated to the public through film and visual arts. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Nature, and TED, to name a few. Patricia Olenek. Patricia works Patricia's work explores art, science, and technology-related themes that often examine the dialect of natural and artificial, and cognition and effect. She also co-directs the New York Laser Program in New York and is a former chair of the Leonardo Education and Art Forum. Let's begin the roundtable. Okay, so whoever wants to jump in on... Um on how do, we, how do we improve upon science art collaborations. I think each and every one of you engages in science art collaborations 
either in your own work with yourself because you have dual degrees or with other people. I'm looking at you, Patricia. <laughs> okay, well. Go ahead, Patricia. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks, um, Julia. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, it's something that I think a lot about. What are the kinds of um, uh, structures and scaffolding that support, um, you know, dialogue between artists, science, uh, scientists, and humanists, and writers, and anybody who wants to be part of that, people who are interested in technology. And there are, I guess, a couple of observations that I would make over the years, having done this um, in different kinds of forums. So uh, when I was introduced um, <clears throat> as the co-director of the uh, New York Laser um, program, which um, we, we do uh, out of Ellen Levy Studio. Ellen Levy is my co-director on that. We very purposely um, actually don't record any of our sessions because we're trying to keep um, the conversations as a kind of testing ground. And we think that, it will, from our observation, that people have been a little bit more um, hesitant to speak up, which of course if you're not really speaking up and you're really digging deep and you're really maybe um, saying something that you don't want to have on record, this can really inhibit, actually recording can actually really inhibit uh, a kind of um, more exploratory kind of set of conversations. But something that <clears throat> I was struck by with uh, even some of Elizabeth Demaray's comments. I'm, you know, I'm quite institutionalized as a person at this point. I really need the research institution to do my work. I need the uh, the maker facilities. I need. Um, it's a kind of context. Now, within that context, there are many different ways to structure it. And um, I think the University of Michigan, which was already mentioned here today uh, once. Um, actually has some very interesting programs that uh, give rise to the kinds of situations that then grow the essential questions that we need to be asking ourselves around these collaborations. A lot of those um, situations involve agnostic spaces. And um, so I'm a big fan of the agnostic space. The idea behind the agnostic space is that it, it's owned by nobody, but it serves everyone. So when technology or programs aren't growing as nodes off of existing programs, but rather they're coming from the provost level, and they're not really owned by anybody, but they serve everyone, then I find that the different disciplines tend to come together a little bit easier um, because the questions grow out of essential issues that are pertinent to everybody sitting at the table. Um, so I guess I would start by saying that the structure that brings together art, science, and technology, that the structure itself can fundamentally shape the kinds of conversations that emerge. Yeah. Daniel, yeah. <laughs> um, giving the eyes. So I, I kind of fell into art science or into this dialogue. I was, I'm a painter. Um, and 15 years ago, I met a geneticist, or he wrote to me, and whatever, we started the discussion. And um, I realized that uh, a lot of questions I had about my readings in physics, which are, you know, physics for the light person and physics and philosophy that probably a lot of us have read, um, and whether I could better understand some of those ideas that I found difficult to understand by engaging with this geneticist, and maybe uh, that genetics was 
sort of po poised to be the physics of the 21st century in terms of its role in society. Um, but um, I also, I think I rushed into that breach because I've always been very uncomfortable in the art world and I, um, excuse me for all the artists in the room, but I often get bored with talking to other artists because we end up talking about the materiality of our practices in ways that are you know, our galleries and if we're lucky our pigments and if we're really lucky we might give each other critiques but rarely um, and I found that when I engaged with scientists we had none of that in common and so the only things we could actually talk about were the metastructures, the, the, the things that are common to all of us which are the culture in which we are and the kinds of inquiries we're interested in. So um, I've often positioned myself sort of as an outsider to a lot of places um, and I think so one of the things that I, um, I kind of spent a lot of time talking to you all last night as I was having a hard time sleeping, but one of the things that really came up was um, the role of failure in trying to collaborate and the role of madness. And I often found myself as a sole artist in an institution of, which grew to 1,500 people, uh, the Broad Institute, that I never knew if I was totally crazy or uh, a visionary or an idiot. You know, like it was very hard to um, understand what my position was. And so um, I think there are, there's something that would be interesting to talk about is the role of the ways in which in, in the different communities we're part of, we have methods for validation for the kinds of knowledge that we produce. Um, and as we move between disciplines, those kind of break down. And so I'm sort of curious with other people in, around the table, but also in the room in terms of your experiences and your, your ideas for solutions, uh, how do we start to build um, communal mechanisms for locating ourselves? So whether they be ways of sort of creating a map of the art science uh, activities that happen in different cities, um, which is something I've been really interested in doing in New York, but um, I feel like we, we need to find mechanisms to um, understand our relative positions. Like uh, at one point, I, I, when I was, I think two or three years after I was at the Broad, this, I found this book that David Edwards had written about uh, called uh, Art Science in the Post-Google Generation or something like that. And it was the first time I read something, I thought I was kind of crazy and on the fringe, and I read something that gave me a context for understanding what I might be involved in and the idea that I might have had this intuitive leap and that it might take 10 years to realize it in any way and to have a few stories was really, really profoundly useful. And I think that's, a lot of us are wondering as we make these leaps, like, am I crazy? No? Or why am I doing this? And there's actually an emergent moment where we're a lot of us are doing it, and I'm just curious, to, what, are these, what are the mechanisms we have to understand that it's actually, you know, like, I often see my ideas on other people's faces, you know, like, like people are constantly using my ideas, they're not my ideas, you know, they're, they're the emergent ideas, and so I'm curious how to, what I, that's my question sort of for the, for the, the space of collaboration, how do we, because um, it's actually very hard to, I've found, uh, I usually say I've spent 15 years failing at collaborating, and I think it, to some degree it's really true. Um, but it, there have been really creative failures. I've 
have a whole body of work that came out of it, and I've really engaged with scientists in very interesting ways, and in ways that, which I think were uh, bi-directional. Um, but so, uh, I guess that's one thing I'd like to throw out. And the other one is, I know this is an art science uh, space or, or uh, conference, but the thing that always comes up for me is, that's just one axis that we have chosen to explore because we are either artists or scientists. But what to me is really interesting is this intra, whether you call it trans or intra, or this space in between all of our disciplines, which allow us to pose questions differently and come out of our, you know, we've talked, everybody has kind of talked about this space. And is there, what are the advantages of keeping that an art science collaborative space? And what are the disadvantages or what might we gain by allowing uh, anthropologists of science into the room or historians or economists or, you know, wh how does the discussion around the table change as you uh, kind of release those boundaries completely? If not, I'll stop for now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just want to kind of go on um, this idea of space. and um, So I'm a geneticist, actually, just to go off what Daniel was saying, I'm a geneticist with parents that are both artists. My dad's a painter, and, and my mom's a filmmaker. And I did my PhD at Rockefeller, and I was very interested, basically. The, during my training as a PhD, um, you know, as, as a scientist, I found that the space and being in a laboratory really enabled me to think about artistic um, endeavors. And it was actually that experience that brought me into the world of filmmaking. So now, you know, it's, it's hard to define and it's hard to hear yourself being defined in a, in a certain way as a, I guess I'm a biologist, retired at a young age and, and became a filmmaker. Um, but I was working on, on, on vision. Um, I was working on fruit flies first in Michael Young's lab that just received the Nobel Prize and then went on to, um, to the Stellar Lab at Rockefeller. And I found that actually the, the work that I was doing was very amenable to, um, to narratives and to, to kind of engaging with, with artists. And, um, and I guess for me, the being in that context is what led me to, um, to actually make that leap. Although I would oftentimes not call it a leap because I feel that a lot of people when you're being interviewed or discuss your journey, everybody always says, you know, how did you transition mm -hmm. from one field to the other? But I never, I don't think about it that way. I think about it as kind of um, a natural progression from, you know, from being a geneticist um, to now being a filmmaker and still focused and, and thinking about those same ideas about how to you know, how to visualize science, how to tr create stories about science, and things that pertain as much to the research world as, as they do to the film world. And I find that there's a lot of similarities um, between, between those worlds. In terms of the importance of the institution um, in enabling the work, most of what I did started as a PhD student. I was able to start a film series at Rockefeller and bring scientists and, you know, Paul Nurse and many people to really engage in how they thought about science in, in media, um, and especially in, in film. And I had a particular interest in, in fiction, actually, in thinking about um, the portrayal of science and scientists and how to create films that were about accurate science, compelling science, but also told stories. And this is a little bit the mission of the Sloan Foundation that was mentioned over the last few days. But it was that environment that led me to, um, to create and to, to make my first films. But then I left that institutional world and I created my own 
nonprofit organization, which is a film festival that happens here in New York called Imagine Science, and uh, that just celebrated its 10th year that started at Rockefeller uh, 10 years ago. And now what I find myself doing is, with this institution, we go back uh, to universities, and the universities have become the venues in which we actually uh, show the films. And, and my career as a filmmaker, I find that I find that the academic institutions and the conferences that I used to attend as a graduate student are the places that received me, um, and you know where I used to have a poster, you know, in the middle of, uh, of like a Hilton lobby. <laughs> I find myself going back there and um, and showing my film, and it's been a real thrill to be able to go back and kind of repurpose these spaces that are um, that are used for scientific talks and conferences and go back there with artistic projects, which I think are happening, and we can probably talk about that a little bit more over the next, uh, over the next hour. So I guess that's my experience, has been that I've de I've almost left the academic world um, to go back to it, and now I, you know, I teach at NYU, and I, and I find myself kind of interfacing with those worlds. But it, there was a step where in which I had to kind of push myself out of there. Um, but I will say that speaking about this overall art-science collaborations, um, and I remember yesterday there was a talk about, you know, do artists enable scientists? Is the exchange um, mutual? I, I would say that um, it's important not to necessarily refer to it as a switch or as a leap, but, um, but I find that those two worlds are very similar in, in processes. and. And you know, and every scientist has an artistic um, kind of chord in them. So, um, so I think it's kind of trying to find that middle ground between those two worlds. And it's not always necessarily about the collaborative process, but it's also about what you know what you're trying to. And in my case, it's a lot about the narrative and the story that I want to say. And then, based on that, I'll I'll engage with different types of artists and, and visual scientists and, and filmmakers and use these different artistic approaches to, to answer a question as I would answer in, in, in a science lab, so, yeah. We're going around. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my background is environmental engineering, and I worked for a number of years in Australia in this field, and, you know, spent a lot of time doing urban design, developing stormwater and water infrastructures in, in the context of cities and new housing developments. And I got really frustrated with working in this industry and also like coming through an engineering education where uh, there was not a lot of opportunities to ask questions about the narratives that are driving these fields, the politics, who is funding research, um, why we frame technologies through this like solutionism um, perspective and through stories as if like technology is going to solve these problems which are inherently political, social, economic. And this is something that, you know, I think in the US is, you know, amplified in an insane way right now by the Silicon Valley. And I feel like my, for me, the reason why I now primarily work as an artist, but also as an academic, so I also teach um, a lot of media arts and computational arts at NYU. Um, so what motivated me to leave the field of engineering and like explore these technologies and these, these you know, ways of engaging with the world but from an artistic context and the context of galleries and so forth is because I didn't find a space for that in, in my work as an engineer and in engineering education. I think this is something that is hugely problematic. Um, 
So I guess I'm going to speak to this more from a perspective of uh, practices that are sort of in between engineering, design, art. I mean, we like use a lot of labels. I don't know if it matters so much what you want to call it. But I do think there's like, you know, I do think um, in terms of some of the really, really thorny problems we're facing that it's so critical that we find um, ways to get a better language for you know, the cultural and political context in which technologies are developed and the agendas which they serve. Um, so uh, my work attempts to address this. It's often like public experiments online or um, it often involves participation, for example. Um, uh, one of my recent works is sort of like a public demonstration of how fitness trackers fail and how you can spoof them and how you can author your own fitness data so that you can take advantage of insurance discounts and health discounts and all of these things that are available to you. And so this project is about telling a story about how these technologies are representing, like they, come, they have an agenda and how that they can fail, right? And that, that you know, an everyday person can kind of uh, try to reverse engineer and understand, you know, what does a step look like from the point of view of a tracker? And therefore, like, what is this story about trackers being representative of health? Like, it's such a narrow view of what health is, right, that serves the insurance industry that is promoting this. So this, you know, exists as a website. As it, we use the language of the Silicon Valley to kind of invite people into thinking critically about data, thinking critically about what it means to quantify the body, quantify health in this way. What's left out, right? Who is left out in, this, in these sorts of um, situations? Um, another work recently that I did just to give some sort of context what I'm saying... Uh, takes a series, uh, is a smell-based dating service, right? So <laughs> we, uh, actually my collaborator is here over, <laughs> sitting over there, but we uh, launched a service that allowed people to sign up. We had a few hundred people sign up in New York City and asked each to wear a T-shirt for three days and send us back their shirts. <laughs> And then they all got ten, ten samples, anonymous samples, randomly from the group, from which they then chose who they would like to meet based on the smell of the body odour. And um, our website would then connect you via email if there was a mutual match between the participants. And yes, people went on dates, and yes, relationships did come out of it. But, um, you know, the project really did provoke an extraordinary conversation about the role of um, smell in attraction, but also provoked this really extraordinary uh, response from the press in terms of, you know, smell dating is the next big thing in dating. You know, we can extract value from body odour, we can quantify it, you know, we can optimise dating in this way that really kind of revealed to me the narrative again that, you know, through which technologies is kind of deployed. Um, but for me, that was really interesting. So we did talk to a lot of scientists. It wasn't really a collaboration. The scientists were kind of like, well, we can't really get involved with that because <laughs> we don't know what's, who knows what's going to happen. But they were, it was fabulous because they did really encourage us to, you know, we were like, should we instruct our participants not to smoke, not to eat garlic, whatever? And they were like, no, you do, like, let people do what they want, right? That's part of the data in your, in your body odour. 
So it was really a way of inviting um, a public to questions that are unresolved in that field, right? And so people could then see for themselves. We got lots of emails from, you know, straight men who were like, I matched with all men. What does that mean? <laughs> and we were like, mm, I don't know why you're asking me. Like, maybe you need to think about that. Right? So there, there was lots of uncertainty and, and humour and obviously... Um, questions raised rather than questions answered, I think, so, yeah. Well, that's a great thing for art to do, is raise questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I think, for me, it's about prodding um, for asking questions of what's missing, what assumptions are being made, like, science totally emerges from a, from a social context, from a culture, um, and I think art can really, like, I think as artists we are trained to kind of look at the stories being told and why certain assumptions being made. Um, and so I think in all fields it's about realising that science doesn't have this monopoly on the production of knowledge, right, and it can take many different forms. In terms of collaboration, I think the challenge is, you know, most of us are like in institutional departments where if I talk to a science, my research isn't really legible to how their research is assessed and vice versa. I find in the US actually this is a little bit better because research uh, metrics seem to be a little bit more flexible in Australia, but it's, I think it's a massive challenge because it means that collaborations, uh, like we're talking about today, aren't really legible to the mechanisms or the institutions that support them. So I think we all need to be trying to reshape our institutions and, and make a space and make a metric for actually supporting this work. Um, so, so, yeah, it's just kind of... Uh Summing up in my mind, uh, we all pretty much agree that having an institution behind you, well, maybe difficult to work with, and their silos are actually very helpful. That's where the money is, oftentimes. The money also could come from a scientific organization doing science outreach stuff. That's pretty much where it's at. We all agree we kind of need a neutral space to collaborate, whether that space is virtual or physical. There needs to be something neutral about it. Um, really interesting your point about not having things recorded. Um, maybe a collaborative space needs to be a, a safe space in that way, where, where people do feel this freedom. Um, Yesterday we were talking about types of collaborations, a taxonomy of collaborations, um, which is an interesting idea to, to think about kind of the potentials of it. Uh, but I'm wondering from, from you guys, you know, what are, and Mark Rosen spoke to this a little bit, but, but what are the things which make collaborations, you know, successful in the way that when we look forward to our futures, what do we hope the future of collaboration looks like? Is it always going to look like it looks right now? Or how can we make it look better? Um, we talk about the space of, to collaborate. It might be interesting to consider how, how we can enhance opportunities to connect first. And I think we heard from people who spoke so far some wonderful uh, examples of interfaces between how things you know, evolved. Um, I would like to answer your original question um, by starting with a, um, giving an example of the thought experiment. Okay. Imagine all humans can see color between only green and yellow. That's it. You cannot see anything else. Um, most likely what your eyes will show you also white because your receptors in your eye will mix the colors and give you white. And black if there's no color. So you'll see white, yellow, green, and black. That's it. And we evolved that way, and that's what we can see. And then one day, I invite you to my lab, 
and I give you a pair of goggles. You put them on, and bang, you see the entire color spectrum, everything in color, red, blue, violet, everything around us. As an artist, it's just an, if you were an artist who put those goggles on, it might completely open up your world. What I would like to say is that there are actually many such goggles today all around the world, some of which are weeks old, uh, which open up, which to a scientist, and I'm, a, I'm speaking as a physicist, I have no clue what, what can they expire in, in artists. There's a disconnect, there's a latency when these, um, and I'm not talking about technology only. I think a lot of you uh, were talking mostly about technology, which I think is a wonderful interface between, I'm also a technologist and I believe in technology, but I'm talking about the ability of science to provide tools that open up your perception as an artist that most artists are not aware of because there's also a disconnect between the two communities that Daniel touched on, you know, uh, artists talk about uh, galleries and, and dealers and scientists talk about uh, journals and uh, graduate students. So uh, there's a disconnect. Um, so I think one of the questions I'd like to propose is, is to find ways for uh, these interfaces to exist so people can see those goggles. Can, can one, one way, which I don't see much of at all, as someone who has to go to conferences all the time. New York City, for example, is known for its galleries and wonderful theaters and so on. But people forget that on a short week in New York City, there are at least 12 scientific conferences being held you know, here. Some of the top uh, scientific uh, societies hold their conferences here. I've never seen an artist at my conference, my physics conferences, uh, even in New York City. Why not bring people or have and at the institution level first, you, you, you will have uh, uh, the American Physical Society, for example, with uh, um, NEA uh, uh, collaborate on some event that will bring the two together, where first just wandering around a scientific conference as an artist, and they're quite often especially talks that you might not understand at all, but there are uh, uh, sometimes technologies or imagine a microscope. This is another uh, example of seeing scale that uh, before cannot be seen. Um, there are, um, when an artist looks through a microscope, sees a completely different world, an abstracted world, which can inspire him or her. And that, those tools can be seen at conferences. They are quite often not only actual tools, but ideas. Um, of course, there is a disconnect on, in terms of the convention. You have to know mathematics, you have to know physics to appreciate details. But sometimes that disconnect is actually advantageous because you see the aesthetic aspect of, of, of exposure. So what I'm suggesting is there should be more institutionalized, uh, proactive bringing together of people um, because of the latency between the time when an idea and science comes in and sometimes decades before an artist picks up on it. Um, to accelerate this, I think, and also I encourage a proactive um, attitude on, on an individual level. Artists really skip going, going to these conferences and there's some dread involved, but let me assure you, it's not as much as the dread of some physicists I know going into a gallery in Chelsea trying to make <laughs> sense of what's going on on the walls. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it takes going over that hill. And once you do, I think the whole world opens up. Well, it seems to me you essentially have done that experiment, no? But uh, going to the Broad Institute as an artist, you've done that experiment. So what would you say was the, was the outcome of having the color, more colors added to your vision? So, um, so I see the world a little differently than, than that. I, I, 
I think, I mean, as artists, we're trained to think about representation. And uh, I come from, I'm French-American. I was born in India. I'm sort of Jewish, but not religious. I grew up in France. So for me, there was always, um, meaning was always context-dependent. And so, and I think a lot of artists think about the world in that way, that they, they are aware of this, the tools they use and the rep representational systems that they use. And so um, when I went to the Broad, I was curious about what are the tools that we, that we use today in science? What does the space of science look like? And I wasn't so much interested in painting cells or neurons or double helices, but I was interested in, in, you know, for example, reading about physics, you know, string theorists talk about maybe there are 10 dimensions, uh, but they're curled up in such a way that we can't understand or see them. And I, I was like, no way. You know, like, I know that there are three dimensions. I'm a good three-dimensional thinker, maybe four, but this is crap, you know? And the first time I met so the, the, this colleague at the Broad who invited me, he said, well, you can think of dimensionality in a different way. You can think of information. And so we choose to chart space on three axes, a point in space with three axes. But if you want to chart its temperature, you can add an axis. And if you want to chart its fuzziness, you can add an axis. And its color, you can add an axis. And all of a sudden, it kind of blew my mind uh, that this was a new tool. It wasn't a, I mean, perhaps it's a sense of, it was a set of goggles, right? Um, it was a story that allowed me to look at the world very differently. Um, however, I also brought my, uh, you know, I'm a highly trained visual thinker, and I brought my tools, and I was not so much interested in just learning from scientists, although that had a huge part, but I was also, uh, I had the kind of the hubris to think that I could also contribute to the discussion and help them make better science, that it would be a two-way street. Um, and so, you know, on the base level, people talk a lot about the genome as a series of eight, four letters, right? And it's very powerful because you can reduce this highly complex framework or this highly complex reality to something for which we have lots of tools, right? We've spent thousands of years analyzing texts and doing numerology. So we can manipulate this Bible. Uh, with a high level of sophistication. And, but as you do that, you forget that they're not letters, right? And it's not that, that they represent other things and that they exist in three-dimensional space with uh, electric potentials and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I listened to this ACTG thing, and I went, well, so you're, you're using... Um, you know, the idea that genes is sort of like a verb, right? It's sort of a word. Um, and at the time, people talked a lot about junk DNA, right? So there was these sequences of code that were like words, that were genes. And then there was all the shit in, 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 in between them that was junk because it wasn't doing anything that we could tell. As a visual artist, I know that the negative space of things is essential to the thingness of things, right? So, uh, you know, the first thing you know, I learned in, in art classes was to a person who draws, this is our universe, right? And anywhere you touch the universe, you change the whole thing, right? And so as I draw a cup, I know that it's operating and it's changing the whole thing if I draw the outline or... Um, and so I was like, 
I don't believe that that's junk, you know? And it's not my saying that that changed the fact that people realized that junk DNA isn't junk, <laughs> but I was able to kind of critically intuit that, that there was information there because it was, it's a representational space. And that's one of the things that artists bring to uh, science spaces. Daniel, what you just, uh, the examples you gave are precisely uh, a different kind of goggles okay. example. Okay. I mean, the goggles does not have to be colors or sound. Right. or mm -hmm. It can be ideas. Uh, and you, right. you happen to have an abstracted abstraction, a bend for abstraction, which right. is wonderful. Uh, one could be inspired by a, a mathematical ideas, as, right. as a, which right. is, you I give guess, examples of. I guess of, we, yeah. we share those goggles. We, we, we give each other goggles. And, and part, of the, part of the richness, I think, of, of transdisciplinary work is that, um, and there's reasons for this, I think, that we uh, increase the, the points of view on, on, set, on problem sets, mm. and we enrich them. And that that echoes in our culture at the mm. moment, that we're thinking in, um, for lots of different reasons, high dimensionally. We're thinking in terms of poly polyphonies. We're thinking in terms of these integrative social systems. And we need non-domain specific ways of addressing them. So what if the residency had not been in uh, like a science context? Uh, what if it was a neutral space with microscopes, technologies, and all of these things were disconnected from art and science. And again, I go back to, for example, the Deuterstadt Center, which is um, a, a part of the University of Michigan. I quote that because I'm, I uh, had taught uh, there for eight years. And the Deuterstadt Center is completely agnostic, run by the provost, serves everyone, and open 24-7. But taking people they, out of the they equation? Have and they have, and they have uh, virtual reality caves. They have um, 360-degree stereoscopic screens. They have 500 independent workstations for the experimentation with digital technology. And you will be in there at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the person to your left is, is from um, uh, biology. The person to your right is from naval architecture and marine engineering. The person behind you is from School of Medicine person over there is from arts and sciences, right? Mm. How does this shift the way that we think about that connective tissue between us? And I, I realize I'm putting out a thought experiment. How do we imagine this would shift the conversation? Because I've done residencies in scientific context as well, and they're wonderful, and this isn't in any way a criticism of that. But I'm wondering if, if imagining this other space would provide us with an opportunity to ask a different set of questions. Well, I, was just, I was thinking about the idea of space because um, I uh, curate a speaker series in Brooklyn called the Empiricist League. And what, what we do is we get um, scientists and researchers and journalists to get on stage, the same stage that comedians and musicians and um, people of, of a different sort of skill set get on stage and, and talk about their work you know, in for 15 minutes. and. I think, um, you know, I've also been in the position where I've gone to, as an artist, gone to a conference um, where I didn't understand the jargon, um, but I immersed myself in it. Um, this is because I was involved in this, I'm involved in the synthetic biology community. And I think that um, it, it takes, um, it's a lot of effort as an artist to be immersed into um, a, a field, a science, a field in science um, like that, um, because you have to, you have to take in what's been said and, and be patient with yourself 
and understand that you'll, you'll, the jargon will become more familiar in time. And then you have conversations with people and you, and you kind of compare your, your jargon, your mutual jargon, and see if you can find overlap. So it's, it's an interesting process as an artist to be so closely intertwined with, um, with um, a scientist. You know, um, I, I experienced this when I was working on the synthetic biology curriculum with um, Natalie Kuldell and the amazing team that I worked on it with. Um, just kind of being quiet and listening to ideas come up and take notes, and then the next time you have the conversation with them, you understand a little bit more, and you can you can and you had said something about um, about observation. And I think that translation is a part of that as well. As an artist, like you you observe what's happening, you observe a process, you you question it, you think about how it's depicted visually, because it is like a symbol, and then you translate it into a piece of work or a graph or a diagram or, or yeah, just something that somebody else can build off of. So, yeah. I, want, I wanted to come back to this idea of tools because I think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about the emphasis of, you know, of kind of repurposing tools and, and using these tools in different settings and neutral settings that the, the way I often think about, you know, accessing and infiltrating these, um, these spaces or conferences is, is also thinking a little bit more, in, in my case, and you know, I have kind of a distorted world where um, a lot of my films are about animals. Um, and the way I kind of infiltrate these conferences is by kind of this anthropomorphic kind of ent entrance into these worlds. So I made a, um, my first film was about fruit flies because I spent 10 years with them. They were kind of my, my friends. Um, <laughs> I spent ten, most of the time looking at fruit flies and, and imagining that I was ah, kind of the like a Kafkaesque, like <laughs> human-sized fly. So I'll spare you guys with with those dreams. Uh, they they appear in some of my movies, but um, but the way I was able to access there was two ways. One was um, through kind of taking a subject matter. Uh, I'm very interested in in this idea of animals. Um, as subject matters in which you can, you know, you can create a film that has a kind of a merge of scientific information as well as kind of like a fictional representation and you can access these conferences, you know, like the Drosophila conferences that, um, that attract thousands and thousands of people all around the world. Um, and I find that, you know, there's a lot about this emphasis of the tools, but the way, the way I kind of get into these worlds is through these model organisms or through the actual participants, in this case scientists, which I invite scientists to be involved in fictional films. So um, Stuart, I think, who has spoken or will speak, uh, Stuart Firestein, plays uh, a 1920s professor of, um, he plays Thomas Hunt Morgan in the in this 1920s lab at Columbia. But I, I, and then I had Leslie Bouchal, who works on smell, um, play a scientist in the 20s. But by involving these scientists in art projects where they're not only passive advisors um, but are actu actually involved in the making of this project um, even though there's a bit of resistance initially I find that I can access you know it's the same way as when you make a film and you want to get you know this actor well I try to get these scientists that are kind of uh, experts in their field to put them in a in a in a kind of leave their comfort zone and, and put them in these settings where they be, they may be talking about their work but they may also be in a, in a fictionalized setting so I think this idea of tools is, is very important, but the tools are evolving at an incredible speed. And I feel that um, the tools will eventually, it's, you know, it's like when you go to film school and 
they teach you about the latest cameras, but ultimately all of this will change and, and evolve. So I think it's important to think about how the tools will enable these kind of ideas, or whether it's also like a mathematical equation or an animal or, um, and I find that for me, the, all the scientific jargon that you were mentioning, I find that there's a lot of ways of making parallels between these, you know, these kind of very abstract ideas and, um, and make these parallels between the lives of scientists and, and, you know, what does it mean to study the genes that dictate color in a, in a butterfly wing and how does that relate to, to a person? Um, so I oftentimes transpose or translate these ideas or these equations into people's lives and, and kind of find these relationships between, between micro and macro. So I think, just to like put this out <coughs> on the floor, I think that um, you know, we think a lot about tools and we think a lot about DIY spaces that have PCR machines and you know, all these tools, but I think ultimately it's, you know, over the last hundreds of years, it's, it is this idea that, that kind of motivates these collaborations. And so. I like that you've inverted the normal model and you're inviting scientists into an artistic space. Yeah. Um, I think, like, maybe also in response to your observations, like, I would like to see more of that. Like, what would it mean to have a scientist in residence at a museum or an, art, or an engineer in residence in an art context? Um, and I think Orland College came up once in, a, in the prior panel, but there's a really wonderful professor there, Sarah Hendren, who is launching this. So they recently have got some funding to do engineering placements into art, art organisations for, for their students. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, that's a great methodology. You don't do genetics anymore. No, I don't. I mean, I, I dabble in science when I work on a film because I get to actually come back and shadow scientists and, and work in those environments. And, and, I, and I will say that, back to your point, it, it is hard to access these worlds. And being a geneticist has helped me. But would speak it have to, the other way around? Um, yeah, it's, it's a question I ask myself often is whether if I had inverted kind of the, the experience and, and my background in terms of studying film. and. I think that, um, yeah, it's a question that I... That I well, there's a fundamental right. question I think we, you're touching on, which I no. think is terribly mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, we all agree that, um, uh, that there's a fundamental relationship between uh, science and, and, um, and art. I mean, aesthetics deals with beauty, perception of beauty. Science deals with truth. Since Plato to Heidegger, people talk about truth and beauty being the same. Uh, or fundamentally re related. So if we all agree on that, the fact that we are here, we believe in it. <laughs> and we're talking about the fact that how um, science can, uh, and those goggles and those equations can inspire artists. But now, both of you open up, like turn the table almost, and uh, ask, uh, it begs asking a fundamental question. Can art fundamentally enhance science, fundamental science? It's, a, it's not clear to me, by the way. I mean, of course, as an artist, as a, as a scientist, uh, I, as a, who loves art. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not totally sure how, as a scientist, in, uh, perception of, uh, of course, on a fundamental level, uh, there is a looking for simple uh, ideas, simple equations. We, we, humans perceive beauty in simplicity. There's a whole movement in physics trying to unify things down to a simple, single equation, possibly. Right. And there's a, a, a people question whether there is a, 
such a thing or, or, or that such a um, funneling down to a single equation is indeed uh, a, a true, a true uh, fundamental thing to do or a reflection of our aesthetic tendencies. But my question, the question we'd like to put uh, forward is uh, to what extent art can inspire science? I, th I think that the first thing to think about before we you know, even address that um, the question is we first have to kind of demystify this idea that science is objective and science yeah. is, you know, is always about striving for accuracy. And I think you know, when I approach any type of collaboration, I'd love to mix, to kind of work in this middle ground between what is real and what is unreal. Um, and so I think you know, what's important is to understand that there's a lot of subjectivity, there's a lot of interpretation and, you know, and creating narratives when you're publishing papers that, um, that shouldn't necessarily um, pollute or misconstrue the facts. I think you know, it actually enhances it in, in many ways. And I think that is how I think arts, art can really help the scientists, is to think about you know, how do we use these tools and repurpose them, or how do we think about these questions in, in different ways. Um, you know, I, I have this story where when I was working on this film about fruit flies, I created a bithorax fly that has four wings. And I had many labs in New York that were involved in trying to generate this fly. It had to be in these 18-degree chambers, and it's very hard to make because they can't get out of the pupa. And, um, and then suddenly we were shooting. We were maybe like in the first week of shooting, and somebody told us uh, at Rockefeller that they had this bithorax fly. So we went over to the lab. We brought it in a petri dish in a taxi. It was like escorted. Um, and then we brought it on set. We had like these huge cameras and ready to shoot, and uh, and it lived maybe for uh, for a minute more. Um, <laughs> but when I made the film, I, I had all these scientists that asked me how I generated this fly. So I, I felt that the film had actually contributed because there was actually no video of this four-winged fly, uh, only these images that were made by Ed Lewis and a long time ago. But um, but anyway, this is a case where the film actually gave people ideas about trying to generate this fly. But I think, um, yeah, just a side note there. Um, I think that, you know, inherently artists are there also to kind of show the scientists that the, the information that they have, the facts that they have, the, they can be used in other ways. There's yeah. a bit of a danger in what you, um, first, I completely agree with you. Scientists yeah. are full of their biases. There could be somewhere on the on the spectrum of uh, aesthetically minded or not, and, but we are all have our biases, it's projected in our work, nonetheless. Yeah. But we teach our graduate students when they write a paper, if they see something, not to tell it because you know, uh, you know, make it sound more beautiful or more aesthetic or more poetic, the other way around. Of course, you all fail to some extent, but um, there's a danger in trying to inject uh, aestheticism in the practice of science. Uh, scientists will recall that we are taught to, to recall at it. So it's, it's a, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> the experiment can be wonderful, can be, you know. Uh, Although the way we learn is through narrative. The way, the way, I think aesthetics, I agree with you, is, is, is a tricky line, but the way we ingest information is by telling stories inherently. Whether it's facts, you know, whether it's experiments that we did in a chronological fashion, or we, you know, we did experiments over six years, but then we streamlined into this paper that, so, so you're inviting a physicist to, uh, to tell a story artistically in the physical review letters? or No, not artistically, but, the, but you have to tell a story in order to present your data. But um, also powers of observation are very different between artists. I mean, I was just at 
Roger Molina's watering hole a couple of weeks ago at UT Dallas, and there was someone there, uh, Patrice Legal, who was working with an artist, and they set up these large fluid tanks, and he works in fluid dynamics. And they worked, I believe, I could be... Forgive me if this isn't entirely accurate, but as I understand it, this pool was tipping back and forth, and they were photographing waves with a very high-speed camera. And um, through the observation of, first of all, through the setup and through the observation of these waves, they discovered that certain parts of the wave formation itself are still on the surface of the water. This is scientific discovery. This is completely new scientific discovery. So I think there are, um, depending on the setup and the, 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 um, the lens through which you observe phenomena, I think this is something mm. that artists bring mm. to the table that uh, it can be quite different. Another example, former colleague of mine, uh, when we were working with particle and theoretical physicists, uh, ended up using the math from physics to visualize a boton. And it was, it was a different interpretation of the math, but the math was correct. And he brought this back to the physicist, and the physicist said, holy cow, the math is right, but we never thought that, we, that it could turn into a form that looked like this. This went back and fundamentally changed the research um, that was occurring in that, that physics lab. So I think there are uh, occasions where um, the kind of interpretive uh, lens through which an artist will look at mathematics and the ways in which an artist will actually observe phenomena can actually bring something quite unique to the table. So uh, I have a question for all of you, um, and this is something I've been wondering about. Um, a, a lot of science art collaborations, maybe 98% of them, are started by artists. Scientists usually agree in the end. Yeah, that was great. I enjoyed that. <laughs> and maybe it added to their work. Maybe it revealed something about their work. Maybe they just liked it because it was fun. We need the dating service. <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, my question is, it, d- does anybody have a problem with the fact that that's true, that, it, that this world is, is pretty much artist-initiated? Is that problematic or not? I don't really know if... I, I haven't really necessarily found that to be true, um, just because, like... Um, as an artist, um, I guess one of the one of the big, biggest projects that I worked on um, was, um, like I said, the curriculum, and I ended up working on that because the scientists asked me to because I'd made like a like a an artifact. I made a diagram that explained a process, and she saw it and was like, "This makes sense to me. I think that this would be great for the book, and and we can apply this to how we teach it." You know, and so I didn't actually actively seek out the collaboration with her I just made something and said here look at it you know um, and was open to corrections and criticisms um, but I want to talk about something really quickly about the the notion of story because even within like the world of art and the world of science story can be jargony um, because I mean I worked in the marketing and advertising world and um, and they would they would just harp on the idea of story 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 and um, and what when I think of story from that perspective, it's like a crafted narrative that leads you to a specific outcome, which is, you know, to a purchase. That's what it is. <laughs> and so, but, but when you're talking about science in terms, I mean, I'm sorry, story in terms of science, you're looking at data and you're seeing what patterns emerged from the data, you know, and maybe you have an idea of what story you'd like to tell, but 
I, I mean, at least this is an experience that I had when I was working with, you know, uh, another collaborator who's a scientist, and, I, and she was like, I'm, I'm looking for the story. I'm like, what do you mean? We, we have the story. It's like, how do, you know, artists and scientists think alike or not, not alike, you know? And she's like, no, I mean, like, the story, like, the, the minutia, the details, like, the patterns. And I'm like, oh, story. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... Still, I think Julia's point is, is still not a two-way street. It's mostly, it's, these things are initiated by artists. Perhaps one way to get the balance off from 98% or so to maybe 90% is to encourage scientists, uh, I know, in, in my, uh, to do art. Uh, my university has a competition every year. Scientists are encouraged to make a picture or a graphic and submit it. And is it the art of science? That's right. It's called the art of science. Yeah. Okay. And um, and I've contributed to it. I lost, but I have no <laughs> colleagues who won. And uh, we take it seriously. So we all become a, an artist for a week. And we, and so there could be things like this done at uh, you know, um, I mean, residencies are wonderful places to. Uh, uh, to practice these things. In my case, it was the other way around. I, I think for a long time, maybe that was true. I, I, I think we're we're in an emergent space. Maybe we're tired of using that word, but um, things are changing very fast, and and there are more and more institutions that are trying to understand what's happening in the street, sort of, sort of, so to speak, and that are trying to support it. Um, I was really fortunate to be the past two years in a uh, conference organized by the National Academies called NACFI, National Academies Keck Futures Initiative, which is originally a science-based interdisciplinary conference. And two years ago, they started uh, inviting artists and designers. And I know Roger was there. Roger Molina was there. Um, and I think more and more, these things are happening all over the place. And um, and in all sorts of different forms. And I, I, I think one of the, focus, the focus is shifting a little bit to, um, okay, well, now we know that this is possible, and, and maybe now we can start tackling problems. And I kind of wanted to come back to what Stuart had said. Um, you know, we've found ways of inter interrogate, we all interrogate the world, and we're starting to see our relationship with it. We have found out some things about our relationship to and effects on the world that are problematic, I mean, I'm adding now, that are problematic and that we, we're going to need to address. And I think a lot of our motivations come from um, different kinds of sense, of sense of urgency about what we can or could do in our siloed activity spaces and what we might be able to do by pooling efforts and points of view. And I think there's, uh, so for example, in the case of NACFI last year, we, we came up with this idea, this question, does the ocean have memory? And it's a silly question, right? Of course the ocean doesn't have memory. Well, wait a minute, you know? Um, and so what's, what's nice is that NACFI also has grants that follow the conference, so we applied for seed grants and we're able to bring together 20, 20 researchers from across oceanography, uh, the humanities, and the arts to play and pose this question. And we're kind of iterating this now. And it turns out that there's a lot of fruitful ways to pose that question, and just in the articulation of the words and then in the articulations of our disciplines. And so that would set off a different series of narratives for each of the It sets out an echo yeah. chamber. And ultimately, yeah. what we're talking about is shifting, and I guess 
that was one of the things I wanted to talk about before I, before we leave it, it, it or before we just open it to questions was um, we're in a space where we're starting to wonder about caring, right? And uh, a few years ago there was a uh, art science conference at MIT and uh, Bruno Latour was one of the speaker, the keynotes, and he said, you know, the science is in about global warming. The real question is, why don't we care? You know, and I'm going to be working from now on, this was Bruno speaking, about why we don't care about Gaia. And I was kind of blown away by, you know, there's, I think, to some degree, without trying to save the world, we're all wondering about that question. What can I do right now? And the reason that we're reaching beyond our disciplines has something to do with that, is that the solution, obviously we're the, we're the cause of the problem, so if we don't start acting differently and starting to find ways to care for this planet that we live on, we're toast, you know? Absolutely, and I mean, I talk to a lot of ecologists because I, a lot of my work involves you know, environmental research and intervention, and I think that's a field actually where there's a huge amount of interest and work happening, uh, inviting artists and designers into research projects because of this, because you know, this, the, uh, the, those fields have struggled to get engagement and you know, public discussion happening around the findings and, and these very urgent problems that we all face. And I'm both excited and terrified when the discourse changes and all of a sudden the artists are going to come in and solve that problem, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, I, I think perhaps this isn't, there's not so much of an agenda to do this in physics, but definitely like in environment and, and ecology there is. But I guess part of what that represents is uh, uh, we're actually coming out of it. We're not going into each, just into another I mean, it's not just about going into the lab or coming into the studio, it's actually going into our common street, or whatever we want to call it, our common world, and saying, well, we, we need to collaborate on this. And it's no longer about just um, doing art about science or science about art. I can see how the environment is, is a, perfect, uh, a perfect environment for it. But what would be another, another uh, discipline that would, that would have such uh, fertility for I think because of the way that science is taught, it's so hard to see outside of these dominant Western narratives that we all just live and breathe because that's the way we're taught from literally like kindergarten, right? So an example that um, I've been talking about a lot with some friends is recent, uh, in, apparently in the field of ecology, they think that the, the way that um, birds evolved to have wings wasn't anything about them getting like developing modes of transport, but it was about an interface for attracting mates, right? So that the birds would perform and the wings get larger, and it's about doing get, uh, attracting your whatever you know your partner. And so I think this, like this idea of affective ecology, the narratives of ecology, we think about it in a very functional sense, right? So, you know, wings were developed because, you know, organisms want to get around better or that there's an advantage to doing that. Or, you know, when an organism is moving around, it's looking for food. And we, we have this super anthropomorphic perspective on the way that we understand all systems. And so I think understanding that affect is something that isn't also exclusively human is obviously something that the arts is really well versed in and can completely then change narratives of how we understand the natural world 
that aren't in necessarily in like traditional, you know, scientific. And I think those narratives are really narratives. important. Um, Ursula Heise at the Sustainability Institute at UCLA is um, an eco critic, and she's highly, highly critical of the kinds of narratives that we're spinning around uh, ecology today, and says that they're highly problematic, and we have to think of entirely new narratives to actually budge people forward, and to think about futures with these changed um, environments that we're, we're we're soon to encounter. But back to that idea of the of narratives. Um, uh, one word that hasn't come into this conversation yet, and I'd like to throw it out there, is the word empathy. Because mm. I teach in um, a medical humanities. I'm the director of the Graduate School of Art at Washington University in St. Louis, and I've gotten some terrific grants to put together art science fellows groups, um, one of them from the Scandalera Center for Entrepreneurship because I managed to convince them that the bringing together of artists, scientists, and humanists was in and of itself an entrepreneurial venture, and I got a nice big grant that culminated with a symposium at UCLA. Um, but the... Um, in teaching predominantly pre-med students and showing them, again, focusing not on the uh, aesthetic qualities of the work as much as I'm focusing on the kinds of discourses that the work attaches itself to using medical practice, contemporary medical practice as both um, subject and object. Um, how is it that artists then extend or expand upon conversations about the AIDS pandemic or about disease and healing or about redesigning the human? Um, it's, it's really changing the ways in which people going through medicine, training for, to become either researchers or to go into clinical practice, are really thinking about their practice. And we know that there's significant data that states that empathy is extremely important for positive clinical outcomes, and yet the average student who goes through medical school over time loses empathy. So they come in with a very high level of empathy, and by the time they graduate from medical school, they have virtually none. And I think increasingly more and more universities are requiring of their medical students to take um, medical humanities courses. This has been one of the richest experiences I'm co-teaching with wonderful um, science historian, um, Rebecca Mesbarger, um, cultural historian. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, the, the one word that I keep coming back to in this course that I think I'm passing on to the med students is empathy. And I'm wondering if anybody has... I think by throwing that word out, uh, you did in, indeed open up my eyes to an answer to the question I posed. Uh, artists are better equi equipped in general, of course, to be, they are humanist in the sense, that much more so on the average mm -hmm. than scientists. So, however, <laughs> scientists can, can, build, can build a nu nuclear bomb. Now, imagine how dangerous if a scientist who can, who can build a nuclear bomb and never read a poem. Okay? So, yeah. uh, there is this ethical um, dimension that mm -hmm. the artist is, on, on the average, better equipped to bring into, into this um, amount. So, yeah. I think that you touched on a very important point. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that arts can offer, indeed, to science mm -hmm. is this uh, humanist view of, of the world mm -hmm. that sometimes scientists can get locked, in, locked out of. I'm really glad that you brought up the, the connection between art and medicine because there's a lot of literature being published about that right now. Um, and I, I think it's, we were talking about, you know, where are the ripe territories for this stuff. That's definitely one place. So we want to open it up to the audience for questions now. You know the drill. <laughs> the lineup. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we have, let's see, we have about uh, 20 minutes for questions. I, um, 
I have to make that point that I have done art that is actually science research. And uh, I discovered, uh, working with liquid formations, that the physics of liquid formation correlates to biological formation processes. And uh, a prime example of uh, my findings is uh, that I discovered the formation process of the vertebrae. I mean, I can, I don't know, maybe I can put it out on the desk afterwards. Um, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yes, just throw it on the desk. But if you have a question for this panel, we would love to hear it. Well, let me just finish. Okay. And it was shown, <laughs> was shown in, was also shown in PS1. One of those um, liquid formation vertebrates is in a collection of the National Gallery in Austria. Um, another example of my findings is uh, that I, I dripped uh, green paint into wet gesso, and um, uh, this mass formation came out. Um, science research, um, horseshoe crab, another paint splash. Um, Stefan, these might be better to look at up close, don't you think? Okay, and uh, let me just say one more thing. Um, um, Anyway, spray can markings, organisms. I put them out there and they'll be out there um, when you want to talk, okay? Thank you. But uh, also, um, my, my website, other dimensional website, deals with um, other dimensional reality, and um, that is also research under the facts of other dimensions. Thank you. Can I say something? <laughs> um, I just want to mention, because we're, we're talking a lot about art practices, and we have this initiative at Imagine Science, um, which some of the people in the audience have participated, where we're very interested in unpublished data, and very interested in data that kind of sits on computers, especially video, obviously, because we, and we try to um, just, uh, I was just um, kind of inspired by by these presentations of these uh, these images, that we um, encourage scientists to actually give us their data and present it in kind of a cinematic setting, mm-hmm. um, and I think that has been an amazing way of getting scientists to feel that their research is being interpreted in a different way, um, and having them actually be there and also talk about the data. And we try not to over narrate or over kind of explain what the data is. We just show it. As if it was kind of like an experimental film from the from the twenties or something, um, you know, like where they used to show like the Percy Smith and the acrobatic fly or the mites <laughs> on cheese or these types of things. And um, and we have this other competition back because I I wanted to talk because film I feel is also the relationship. Every art practice has a different way of thinking about it, but. We get a lot of scientists that are very enthusiastic about participating in film. And when we do this collaboration at Imagine Science called Symbiosis, where we get scientists and filmmakers to collaborate, usually the scientists are, you know, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but they tend to be the most enthusiastic. They tend to open the labs and and be very open to these kind of collaborations. So I've, I've found that if you have the right setting and the right organizations, these kind of closeted scientists that feel that maybe some of their work is not meant to be used in other ways, they just, it opens it up and then we, we almost get them to be so excited that they want to still continue working and, you know, Andres here, 
he was part of that symbiosis competition. And, um, and we have this event called a lab meeting where midway through their, the making of these films, they talk about the, the process of it. So I find that scientists actually, they re-inject in the art community this kind of sense of, of kind of new wave and, and excitement where sometimes artists, and again I'm generalizing, may have a little bit more of a blasé or kind of, and scientists, they, they just, they get really excited. And I always prefer to show my films to scientists than to people, <laughs> people, in, people in film festivals. is a very, like, a, a very specific environment where there's just a lot of pretentious, uh, whereas with scientists, you just get, like, these inherent excitement about, hmm. about I think your point. point about taking data and information out of a context and put another context can be really enriching and artistic. Um, in, in conferences, or you can go, if, even if you are a specialist, you go to a session where you can be completely gibberish, okay? Right. <laughs> and uh, especially if a life scientist goes into a physical scientist or vice versa. And that happened to me many times, and I see, I sit in the back of the room, and I look at the view graphs. Yeah. And the view graphs become, dis because they're dis disconnected from their context, right. become purely visual. Right. And they can be gorgeous. I mean, they can be absolutely beautiful to look at. And I think this is a great exercise uh, yeah. to take real data plots Actually, my, my office is decorated with, with plots, which uh, are um, to most, uh, most everybody else. But they are, I presume they are beautiful to some extent. But I think what you're doing is a wonderful thing, uh, was to take things out of context and, and let the visual part speak. Yeah, I, th I think okay. it's very important. Thank you. We're going to take the next question now. That's actually a good Anna is bursting. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Anna Finefour, and you'll see my artwork later this evening. And I'm really happy to be here. I've been working in scientific concepts, not solely, but it interests me. And recently I was at a event at National Academy of Sciences. Alana's here, but... It wasn't her event, and it was about gene editing. And my next project is for an exhibition at NIH about transposons and how they're expressed in tulips. And I found out that the tulip genome hasn't been sequenced, so I asked this woman who works on rare diseases, you know, I said, you know, why hasn't the tulip genome been sequenced? Nobody can explain to me why except that it's very expensive. And she said, well, you know, it would be really big and we'd have to understand it. And I said, no, I don't have to understand it. And so my question is how, with all of these issues, there's not all scientists, obviously, but too many of them, this idea that I would say I don't have to understand it is very foreign to them. And after the event, there was you know, time to socialize, and people came up to me and thanked me for putting it out there like that. So it's very much like, I just want the visualization to use it as for collage. I don't have to understand how you got to that point. So I think that's an, a really important issue for the scientists to understand that we don't, artists don't have to understand it. <laughs> but they don't always understand it either. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. exactly. That's true. Exactly. Thank, you. Thank you. I'm Dr. Shirley Muller. I am a physician. I wanted to add some balance to the empathy issue. I think this was someone from the University of Chicago, and he showed, yes, that in medical students, that when they start, they have a lot of empathy, and at the end of their training, they don't. And then he went into the positives and negatives of this. And although it is true that having some empathy is a good thing, 
I think for a physician to have way too much empathy is a bad thing. I mean, that is part of the beauty of becoming a doctor, is to become objective about the patient. For example, I could never treat my family. It would be a disaster. But I can treat people I don't know. So like everything, you know how the whole world goes like this. You know, at one time, one thing is good, and then it isn't, then it's good again. I think with the empathy issue, that's kind of the same thing. Balance is the most important thing. Not that you didn't say that, but it's important to realize it. Right. I, I mean, I've been co-teaching co, um, um, with um, people from radiology for you know, about 15 years or so, and I was astounded to learn from the people that I knew at the universities that I had taught at that there was even only half a day of ethics training that went into med. So there's, you know, we, we get a lot of students coming back and sitting in on our class and saying, oh my God, I wish we'd have had this course when we were going through med school. So you're right, it's, it's, uh, um, uh, I certainly understand the importance of being able to make an objective decision in the delivery of um, a medical assistance of any kind. Um, but they're, you know, certainly for the students who are sort of taking the course and coming back a few years later, it seems to really be helping them. So we'll see how it all balances out in 10 years. Yeah, thank you for your comments. Especially in surgery, it's hard to have a lot of empathy. Yeah. You're going to slice into somebody. <laughs> well, that, that, that's where anesthesiology comes into place, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Uh, first of all, thank you to everybody who's been on these roundtables today and everyone who's asked questions. I've really enjoyed um, the day so far. My name is Kate St. Amon. I'm the co-artistic director of a New York-based dance company. And for the past few years, we've been digging into this intersection of science and art. Um, we ended up creating an evening-length work that um, Happy to Report premiered in New York, went very well. Um, and Edgar, you mentioned um, about bringing art to, like, for example, an APS conference, and we did. We just did exactly that last wow. month. Um, we took the whole company to the New England chapter, University of Rhode Island, um, uh -huh. to the APS conference, uh -huh. and it was amazing. What, what did you guys do? We performed our entire work for the conference, and so we went to some of their conference, and most of them came to see the performance, and we all spoke after. So, which kind of leads to my question, which Daniel, I think you were starting to touch on. Um, We've done a few other examples of that, but it just directly correlated to what you said. So that was one performance um, through which we performed the dance and engaged with, um, to us, a new audience. And what we're coming to a lot is, you know, I think what you do is amazing. I think what you do is amazing. And that's great that we both know it's really important that what we're talking about and doing and you know it's it's important but it's almost like what what do we do some what do we do next or and you were talking about kind of bringing this to a more world discussion and I don't know I'd be curious to hear you speak a little bit more about like what do we do next or what can we do because there is a sense that it's important that we're talking and figuring stuff out and having these conversations but sometimes um, it's good to hear a new perspective of why like why it feels so important well, why do you think it's important um, I think if I could. <laughs> I could keep listening to all of you say all of these things that are exactly, and I think in the last discussion, art can sometimes embody something that we can't say, and it can be ugly and beautiful and confusing and intelligent all at the same time. So for me, um, quantum mechanics just sparked something in me very specific, and I, I, I knocked on a lot of doors along the way because I am in no way a scientist. So. Um, 
it can say anything, nothing, and everything. Um, I don't want to get too far into my personal experience, but I feel that it's important, and I feel that I learn something after every conversation or every performance that I didn't know before, and that's what I hear happens after people are watching what we're doing. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just seeking more words to quantify that as we continue to grow our work. Um, uh, last year at the uh, space in between conference, Ellen Levy, who's sitting over there, uh, talked about uh, attention and how her work was shifting to attention and to look at attention. There's some really great examples uh, and questions that she asked, but uh, for me that was really transformative and I think um, we're starting to pay attention. You know, like we, we are feeling a need to pay attention and um, it's very hard to pay attention. I mean, we could go into discussion about evolutionary behaviors and stuff like that. But um, if you're in the environment that you're in, always the same, it, you're, you're, you pay attention differently. And as you start to reach out and to be in a place where you don't quite know the rules or uh, something will come up and you have never seen it before, oh my God, right. you know, you pay attention. Um, and so I think there's something in this space that we're exploring which is allowing us to pay attention and we, we, we know that it's urgent that we do it. So I think we, we all have different uh, things that we're starting to pay attention to, uh, you know, places that we turn to for that sense of uh, surprise. Um, in my practice, in my, just before I started working with scientists, I always move my paintings around in the studio because every time they're on a new wall in a new light, I see them differently and I can repaint them or I can find find clues to how to continue them. And I think uh, there's something, I mean, I, I really think there's something happening across our cultures where, um, and whatever, I have a whole, you know, theoretical framework around it, I won't bore you with it, but um, I think there were some very profound changes that happened at the end of the 19th century that put us into a new sets of causalities and where it's unfolding. And at the same time, we're faced, partly because we can see it because of those changes that happened, we're faced with these sort of mounting deadlines. And so I think those two things together um, are making us notice, stop and notice. And I think there's a real reason for it. And, you know, that's what, I think that's why we're all in this room in some way, because we stopped and we're noticing. We're wondering how to move from here. You mentioned that, I uh, just want to add one thing to what you said. You mentioned that uh, art has been described in this conference as uh, something that can express um, things are beautiful, ugly, and confusing. And then you mentioned that you're curious about quantum mechanics. Um, as someone who teaches quantum mechanics, I can tell you you picked the right field because it's, <laughs> it, is, it is really, it can be very beautiful. Right it, it can be, uh, uh, the equations can get very ugly, and uh, it's very confusing. Mm -hmm. And the more, the more you dig into it, the more confusing it is. So and as an artist, you could not have picked a better branch of physics. <laughs> Hi, my name is Leona. I'm a, a laser accelerator student at Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And uh, I've been thinking about a lot of these questions a lot, actually. And uh, I think if you asked Einstein if his work with his violin was crucial, he would say yes. And for me, I have been, I have a favorite author. It's Jules Verne. And I don't <laughs> research in exactly that field, but it, his work inspires me. Um, I've thought about this question of whether art is actually necessary for scientists to be scientific. Um, not just whether art can inspire science. And 
I don't have an answer to that. I'd, I'd like to think yes, but I also know a lot of scientists who don't know anything about art and seem to be pretty good scientists. So anyway, if you could address that, would be great. I just wanted to mention two conferences that I don't know how many of you know about that uh, do bring science and art together. And they have uh, art galleries and presentations by artists. And they have workshops um, at each of these. One is called Bridges, which is an art and mathematics conference. And um, they have a, you know a day for families and children and play and it, so we're talking about what can happen at these conferences. They're, they're a good example. And the other one is that started out as a Society for Literature and Science and has become Society for Literature, Science, and the Arts. And um, so the kind of uh, work you're talking about has been going on at these conferences for um, a very long time. And I recommend, recommend them to anybody who wants to see how to keep going with this kind of thing. Thank you. Yeah, those are both really, really great conferences. I'm sure some of you in the room have been there. Um, I'd also, I, at the risk of sounding like I'm just p plugging an organization, but it's a good one for anybody who's interested in arts integration in general as the Alliance for the Arts and the Research Institutions, because they're looking at not only how uh, art uh, sort of permeates and integrates across campus, but how the other, you know, and again, it's the more difficult part of the conversation, how are other you know, uh, disciplines coming to the arts. But there's one kind of branch or node of the research task force, the National Research Task Force, is called the Third Tier Aggregator, that's looking to establish a research platform and also uh, a kind of um, committee of 100 people who will be qualified to assess transdisciplinary work. And if we can get more people um, able to navigate the tenure system who are doing this kind of work, it will fundamentally change the kinds of spaces that open up uh, you know, on university campuses, the more sort of joint appointments you get, the more that we can assess this kind of work that's happening in this space between. And this is one group run by Kevin Hamilton and uh, at uh, uh, Champaign-Urbana and also Dara Byrne at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. They've been working very hard to sort of establish uh, this and it could again it could it could fundamentally change the way that research universities uh, where that have art programs are functioning and science of course is deeply embedded in in uh, in all of these conversations so yeah yeah well actually since we have yeah. so you touched on a very important point uh, creating academic positions in, in a, such a field yeah. discipline field uh, I, I think if I hear you right you are exactly a junior faculty going through that process is this something that you think is difficult? Are you facing difficulties or facing um, resistance from traditional ac academic uh, attitude towards merging two in, in, in practicing as, uh, as an academic? Um, or not necessarily I'm, you in your institution, but in general? Well, is I mean, I'm very lucky at the moment in that the en engineering school at NYU is very unusual mm. because it used to be Brooklyn Polytech, and so we have an SDS department, we have mm. a digital media department within the engineering school, which is like almost unheard of anywhere else. Mm. But it means that like within the school itself, there is this interdisciplinarity which I did not experience in the other institutions I've been in. I mean, I think in the context of art and design, there's a lot of opportunities for... Um, 
for people who are doing more interdisciplinary work, particularly people who are engaging with, you know, computation, media arts, as technology is sort of, and computation is seeping into all aspects of our lives, I think there's a sort of an awareness and, and an agenda for uh, in, including that more centrally within an institutional context. Um, but I also think, and this relates to the STEAM panel that was earlier, that um, the way that engineering and science are taught excludes a huge amount of the population. I mean, if we look at who's in this room, like, we're not exactly a hugely diverse bunch in here, right? Why is that? And, like, coming through an engineering degree where literally at the start of every subject the professor would be like, oh, well, 60% of people failed last year, so you better work really hard. You know, and it's like, well, that's why we face these diversity issues in the Silicon Valley and in lots of the sort of institutions where we work. We have the privilege of working. And so I think for me, one thing... So I teach computer science but through an art pedagogy, so prompts, assignments, um, the work we do is open-ended, it's about personal expression, um, it's not about, you know, working through problem sets as a con traditional computer science um, I'm course to would be. I'm going to up there, unfortunately, but... All I was going to say is that that means next, so. that um, a different community of people feel invited and feel able to participate. Yes, and that's a really important part of yeah. STEAM and kind of... Could I, excuse yeah. me, could I just make one more point? Okay. We do is, have to cut it's off It's really now. short. Okay. Which is the, the invitation to, to why don't we show up at more scientific conferences, the 12 scientific conferences. The artists that I know cannot afford the registration yeah. for these conferences. If these conferences yeah, yeah. would put aside a registration or a, a free registration for and invite an art student that would help tremendously. Absolutely. Okay, everyone. Um, Thank you. Conversations to be continued. Absolutely. Thank you, Roundtable. Thank you so much. Yeah.